This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we speak to Boris Kagerlitsky, the renowned Russian Marxist sociologist and activist who was arrested at his home in Moscow on July 25 by the FSB, otherwise known as the Russian Secret Police, and taken to the city of Siktivkar in the Komi Republic, more than 800 miles away, where the local FSB opened a criminal case against him. He was accused of justifying terrorism, ostensibly for comments that he posted on social media 10 months earlier regarding the attack on the Crimean Bridge. Even pro-Kremlin political scientists were surprised at how far-fetched the accusations were. Boris was held in custody in pretrial detention that was extended, spending four and a half months or so in custody. Kagalitsky's arrest was part of a coordinated attack on the online journal and YouTube channel Robcor, or workers' correspondent, of which he is the editor-in-chief. As the Russian socialist movement put it, Kagerlitsky's arrest is an attack on the whole left movement in Russia. In response to his arrest, a huge movement to Boris emerged all over the world. There was even a small event we held here in Studio City in concert with actions all over the world on Boris's 65th birthday in August. Kagerlitsky's trial opened on December 11th in Siktivkar. The prosecution and the FSB demanded five and a half years. Boris's stellar lawyer, Sergei Erekhov, argued that the charges against Boris were absurd. He said, in his activities, Professor Boris Yulievich Kagulitsky never supported or justified terrorism. The purpose of all of his speeches is an attempt to show the real problems that the Russian state faces. In a total surprise, the Russian authorities were forced to make unprecedented concessions to public opinion and the demands of thousands of scientists, researchers, artists, politicians, trade unionists, and political activists from around the world. The trial lasted two days, and Kargolitsky was found guilty, fined 600,000 rubles, which is about $6,600, banned from editing any media outlet or webpage for two years, and set free. The next day, Robcor held a crowdfund event and 700,000 rubles were raised within an hour. Solidarity works. We're going to hear from Boris when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm very pleased to have Boris Kogelitsky with us just two weeks after his release from his nearly five months of pretrial detention in Russia's far north. Boris has been on this program many times and is perhaps the best-known Russian Marxist intellectual activist, a powerful voice for socialism and Marxism in Russia and around the world. His many books have been widely translated and published. His articles and popular broadcasts have astutely analyzed the political economic situation in Russia, and he's openly critical of Kremlin policy. The Russian state has imposed increasingly draconian charges and sentences for even minor anti-war activities, arresting thousands. But for Putin to go after someone so well-known internationally, as Kargolitsky demonstrates, the lengths he's willing to go to silence any and all criticism. But Kargolitsky's arrest and detention also confirm the power of his incisive analysis and steadfast determination to resist the increasingly authoritarian and fascist nature of Putin's Russia. In April of 2022, two months after the invasion of Ukraine, the authorities declared Kagerlitsky a foreign agent. Usually, that's a signal to leave the country. But Boris decided to stay despite the real risk of going to prison, which then happened. It was a brave and honorable act. Boris is no stranger to being jailed for his thinking and his activity. He was first arrested in 1982 during the Brezhnev era for his so-called anti-Soviet activities, publishing the left-wing journal Left Turn, and he spent nearly two years in prison. He was a deputy to the Moscow City Soviet between 1990 and 93 and was arrested, beaten, and held as Yeltsin bombed the parliament building in October 1993. He spoke to us on air just after his release. Boris was arrested again and held for 10 days last year for sharing content on social media about the fraudulent results 
of the September 2021 parliamentary elections. He continued to write and broadcast on his very popular Rob Corps YouTube channel and website. And then, as I mentioned in the intro, on July 25th, Kargolitsky was arrested at his home in Moscow and transferred to Vgar, where the case of the Russian FSB directorate for the Komi Republic was being investigated. His lawyer called the charges absurd. Further, his lawyer stated, our stated position on this matter is ho- simple and holistic, as the truth should be without speculation and heaps. In his activities, Boris Kagulitsky never supported or justified terrorism. The purpose of all of his speeches is an attempt to show the real problems the Russian state faces. And as I stated in the intro, Kagulitsky's trial began on the 11th of December and lasted just two days. The prosecutors asked for five and a half years in prison. He was found guilty but let free, fined 600,000 rubles, and banned from editing and broadcasting on his channel for two years. His lawyer said that the reason for the lenient sentence was Kagalitsky's age, but there are thousands more innocent political prisoners of all ages arrested for their opposition to the Kremlin's war. They need worldwide solidarity, too. So with all of that, Boris, and that's a lot of introduction, welcome back to the show. Well, uh, happy to see you again, Susie. And of course, uh, well, it's very important. There are plenty of other political prisoners who are not as well known, who do not have so many friends around the world and so on. Uh, And uh, well, this is another case of inequality. So even when you are facing uh, political persecution, uh, the logic of inequality, Mm. the logic of injustice continues to operate. So when you are more famous, more popular, more influential, you have a better chance to get out of jail. So I think it's very important to know that there are still plenty of people of different political uh, trends and tendencies from left to right, who are still in jail in Russia, and we definitely need to advocate their release. Uh, And I hope they will all be released. I I, I hope very much that that will happen soon. I was going to ask you, you know, were you surprised? Did you expect that you were going to be behind bars for years? Uh, Well, actually... Uh, maybe it's because I'm too optimistic, you know, <laughs> I'm a kind of um, unremediable optimist. So in that sense, I really hope for the best, for the better at least, and it did happen. So this is another lesson. You should hope, you should expect something good to happen, and it does happen, you know, really it does happen. And also, of course, it was partly uh, the expectation that uh, my name is uh, well known abroad and uh, even given the fact that is not very interested in what they say around the world about Russia at least they're interested uh, in what is said say in Brazil in India in South Africa in the countries which they continue to keep uh, as as neutral as possible in the current situation the third world uh, is still important for the russian policymakers Again, uh, this is one of the good uh, aspects of being a lefty, by the way, because Mm. if you're a lefty, you care about the global south, you care about the third world, you care about people uh, outside of the Western countries, uh, and that makes you more known also and more uh, popular among these people outside Europe and and North America. And that, uh, interestingly enough, was a very important factor which helped me to get out of jail this time. So, so it was not only solidarity, it was very much the solidarity from the global south which helped me, you know. Yeah, so this is something to be noted. It's very important. Given that you just said that there are thousands more, in the jail where you were held, were there others who were there for anti-war activities? Sure, there were. Sure, there were. Uh, actually, uh, as I learned uh, during uh, these four and a half months, there were eight other political prisoners together with me at the same time with me. Actually, I met uh, two of them, so it was not impossible to meet uh, these people. Uh, by the way, there were different people because those guys whom I met were uh, intellectuals and political activists. Uh, But I knew that there were other people who probably got 
less uh, attention, uh, like uh, a truck driver, uh, people like that, working class guys. And again, again, speaking about injustice and and so on. So they've got less attention. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, because I asked if you were able to meet others, what was your life like in prison? Was it, were you in the general population so that you could converse with others? Were you held in solitary? Well, uh, not really. Uh, But prison is a very separate world of a kind. And, uh, of course, we had a cell where we had only four persons, but uh, they rotated. So there were only two people who stayed over all the time. Uh, the first one was a kind of housemaster, if you want. Uh, he he actually behaved like a landlord, really. It was like his cell, you know, it was his cell. He stayed there for three years already. Uh, so that was really like his home. And we all felt like being being guests at, at his place, you know, <laughs> uh, not not necessarily so welcome guests, but never, nevertheless. Uh, so there was one person who kept the cell proper, uh, uh, decent uh, and organized. So that was his home and you should behave, you know, you should behave because that was his home. Other people rotate. They keep rotating. I'm sure there are some more people who replaced me and, and so on in the same cell. Uh, so, so the result is rotation. So, uh, so while there are only four people in the cell, uh, you keep uh, learning about more people. Uh, you keep meeting other people. And also sometimes you meet people when uh, they send you to the court, uh, for example, so some legal procedures, like you have to read the... Uh, the documents uh, which concern uh, your fate and so on, so on your your trial. Uh, so when you get to there, uh, you you are taken to the court. Uh, they first put you into some boxes, so-called boxes, uh, and there can be like five, ten, uh, eleven, twelve people in a box. So you can meet other people, communicate with them. You can meet people while on, on the way to the to the court and back to, from the court and so on. Uh, also, uh, you have uh, to have some uh, a time for, for a walk. So you, you, you take a walk for one hour a day, uh, but then people shout from one yard to another. Uh, so they're, they're just communicating between the... There are small yards where you usually have only people from your cell, uh, the, the same four people, but there are uh, smaller boxes or yards so to your right and to your left, and people start shouting, who's there? Hi, <laughs> hi, hi, neighbors. How are you doing? Uh, what's the news? And so on and so on. Uh, there are very special voices, by the way. You have to train your voice in a special way. I, I cannot uh, shout like that, but uh, the, now I will learn. Every time when I hear a specific voice, I can tell this guy was, a, was in prison for a while. So he had this experience of communicating between the walls. Uh, so so they, they pass the information through, and sometimes very interesting information. They even have political discussions well, that's what I wanted to hear. So tell us a little bit more about it. So while you're walking in this sort of, what, enclosed yard, you're able to kind of shout back and forth with the other... I, I never shouted, actually. Okay. <laughs> right. My voice is not good enough for that. I, I, I listened. I listened. Sometimes people shouted, tell the, our best regards to your professor, Kagarlitsky, things like that. Where is the but professor? That- Where is, is the professor with you? Uh, you know, That's- when, uh, for example, we were walking uh, through the prison corridor and uh, to get to a walk, and one of the guards uh, saw me uh, across the corridor, started waving his hand, saying, uh, shouting, hello, professor, how are you? Good luck, and so on and so on. So what was interesting, there was a lot of sympathy uh, among these people, including uh, people from the guard. I mean, really, it's very impressive. A lot of sympathy, understanding, and support even sometimes. Of course, most people there, of course, they did, well, they did commit crimes. Sometimes these crimes were produced by poverty or, or uh, social pressure. Sometimes not. Uh, there were also business people. There were bureaucrats, uh, all sorts of people. And uh, it was very much like a, a kind of model of a society, you know? 
of a sort, you see, because uh, uh, you have uh, all, all layers of society represented in one way or another. Of course, there were debates, discussions sometimes. <laughs> well, I, I've got, uh, in my jail, I've got uh, three people who were accused of uh, being murderers. One of them was extremely nice, extremely nice guy. <laughs> really charming, really caring about everybody in the cell. Uh, when uh, he was taken away for a few days for a trial uh, to another town in, in, in Komi Republic, uh, we really missed him because without him it was uh, less uh, less atmosphere. And because he was really very kind and he cared about everybody around. And so, and he was uh, he was accused of, of, of killing a, a businessman. Actually, he. <laughs> Uh, for money, for money. So, well, people are, you know, people are very strange animals. I should say they, they're very contradictory. They can be very nice at the same time. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know whether he really did, whether he really committed the crime he was accused of. Because you, well, in, in prison, you really don't ask these questions. But I know what was his accusation, at least. And. This is exactly what I had hoped to hear from you, Boris, because I I was thinking of you while you were there. Well, Boris is a sociologist and he's a keen observer of human personality and politics and everything else. So I was assuming that you were storing all of these different stories in your Absolutely. head. But were you able to write and did you have access to news and books? You mentioned in, in your letter uh, you didn't have, I guess, the books that you took with you. Yes, Tell there was a that. problem. There was a problem. Uh, first of all, speaking about uh, the letters, this is a great progress compared to the Soviet times, because in the Soviet times, uh, of course, there was total isolation. Not anymore. Yeah. Uh, there was a uh, there was a TV set in the cell, and there was a, a fridge, not a big one, but there was a fridge. Wow. It's, it's, it's a tremendous progress because you can keep some food for longer. You can store it. Uh, so television was a, a serious problem in a way because the, there was a lot of nonsense on television. And uh, so Russian television is terrible. <laughs> I, I don't think American is much better. But anyhow, uh, I, I, I just right. wanted to tell you about the, the, my Russian experience. Uh, so it was sometimes I thought that was a kind of torture uh, because <laughs> some shows were so bad, so so terribly bad. And you uh, were forced reality, to watch them. <laughs> they were reality shows. They were just disgusting reality shows. Russian, I don't know. Again, I think American reality shows, Western reality shows are very much the same. Uh, it's the same kind of genre. Uh, but they really, they're really disgusting. They, they, they show all negative sides of, of human beings, really. Um, but um, we did uh, follow that. We did uh, watch because... Uh, also, that was a way to uh, uh, to control the time, among other things. You know what time mm-hmm. takes this or other um, uh, other show. Uh, there, there is a schedule, uh, and um, that helps you to control the time. You don't have what watches are prohibited in prison. There are no watches. So, wow. Yeah, there were no watches. <laughs> so you have to check the time on TV. You see, that's the problem. And when you have a particular show, this, this show, show tells you what time is it now, you know? Did you go out to eat or was food brought no, to your cell? inside the cell. It was inside the cell. Wow. Wow. So, uh, and, and, and what was, about the news? What, did you have a I censored news? So there was official, there was official news on, on television, which was full of propaganda. Nobody, nobody in the cell believed anything uh, from the official propaganda. There was, a, especially in Komi, uh, there was a lot of crime news uh, because uh, about an hour of political and uh, public news from central television. Then you get local news, uh, which is about how good things are in, in the Komi, in our republic, Komi that uh, the, our, our wise uh, local government cares. Uh, the big brother is really the, <laughs> the one who cares about us. Uh, every, every day it takes another 40 minutes. And then it takes another, uh, another hour uh, to watch the crime news from the Komi Republic. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting <laughs> contrast. First, they tell how good things are. Things are really great, and they're going to be even better. And then next show is the criminal show. Uh, and criminal show or some, some accidents and so on. 
like uh, bears walked into a town, uh, just there were some accidents with the bears, but then the bears left. <laughs> so things like that. You know? Yeah, uh, so entertaining. Twice, twice during these four months, there, were new, there was news about bears uh, visiting some towns. <laughs> well, things like that. That makes a kind of very Kafkaesque, uh, very absurd contrast. Uh, Orwellian, maybe more than Kafka, it's very Orwellian. Uh, also, Saltykov Shidrin, great Russian writer of the 19th century, who was a great satire writer. Uh, well, and speaking about the, uh, the letters, I've got a lot of letters. letters. I've got a, a whole pile of letters every every morning, 10, 11, 12 letters every morning from my friends and comrades and my family, and uh, but also from the unknown people. Uh, actually, I made a few acquaintances uh, because of that. There was a very interesting correspondence. And um, yes, I did write a few articles. I started writing uh, introductions uh, to uh, a series of books, which we are publishing with uh, our friend uh, who, who runs a publishing company in Moscow. So he uh, publishes a, a series of um as he told, socialist classics, uh, all different types of uh, uh, socialist thought uh, from the early 20th century onwards. Uh, well, right and left and radical and moderate uh, reformist revolutionary, but the whole idea is to give to create such a library of socialist thought with all different variations. And I started writing introductions to these uh, books. So I, I wrote four introductions. Actually, uh, two pages were lost uh, during the process of uh, uh, when they were sent from prison to the editor. Now I'm going to rewrite these two pages from two different articles, but basically they arrived. You were writing by hand, I assume. You didn't have sure, access sure, to course. it yet. No, no computers, no notebooks, no, no, no telephones. <laughs> Uh, but uh, also some of my friends in Moscow and uh, Leningrad, they asked me whether I was going to write prison notebooks like Grumman. Yes. <laughs> and I said, and to make things worse, to make things worse, they even sent me a few notebooks uh, for, for, for this purpose. And I said, no, 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 because Gramsci stayed for quite a long time in, in jail. And you're and, not going uh, to. It took him a few years uh, to, to do the writing. And uh, I actually hope that it's going to be not as long as in, in, in the case of Gramsci. Well, at least so far, it did work this way. So there was no prison notebooks from Boris Kagalitsky, uh, but there were and prison letters. And what about books? Were, did you have access to books there, or did, were books sent to you? How did that no, go? No, no, uh, Political books, books on sociology, philosophy, economy, they were banned. They were not allowed in prison. Uh, only uh, fiction. I did some reading. I read uh, some modern Russian uh, texts and uh, also started rereading some of the old texts, which I wanted to reread so so in that sense yes i did uh, have reading but uh, not anything professional not anything academic or political and i've got a few books with me but they were not allowed to be given to me in in, in jail in, in the cell so those books are perhaps there for others to have or they're just confiscated no no they were returned now i have them oh, they were returned so i've got I them back so let's if you if we can go a little bit more into your analysis of of what happened and why one thing i wanted to say is you're very well known for your humor and your sense of irony including in you know the video discussion about the crimean bridge so yeah. do you think that that was a factor in your arrest that you know the authorities had no sense of irony or oh. uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that to the extent that you're able well, first of all, I do agree that uh, they don't have a sense of humor, but uh, I don't think that they consciously uh, had uh, some reason to persecute me for my sense of humor. I think it's uh, <laughs> they do not go that far. No, I think the reason behind my arrest was that they were trying to get rid of all more or less prominent voices not even caring about whether these were voices on the left or on the right. They they were not very political. They didn't care very much about 
political philosophy or, or theory or even ideology. Uh, they just didn't want critical voices, period. And uh, at some point, they decided that it was about time to uh, put an end to the presence of some prominent voices, which uh, um, made them unhappy, so to speak. Uh, you know, it's, it's, if I could just interrupt, it's just it's striking to me somebody many thousands of miles away, but who's always been studying, you know, the Soviet Union and now Russia, and it's just so much like Stalin's playbook, you know, criminalizing any opposition. First of all, of course, to the war, but much more broadly. But Putin, it seems to me, like Stalin, was unable to face the consequences of the failure of policy, so instead he just wanted to silence any voices that, you know, were raised against it. And and mostly I think this points to a weakness at the heart of the Kremlin and the crisis that the war has created. But I want to hear more from you about, you know, your thoughts on that. Well, speaking about the weaknesses, uh, it's really a problem here because, okay, for example, they technically silenced me. Yes, okay, I, I was uh, put away from the internet. Did it change much? It didn't. On the contrary, when I was able to talk, I kept talking. Uh, then they silenced me. Then people started talking about me. So yes. and when I talk, at least I control what I say. And, well, let, let's be honest. I, I, I tried and I am trying to be kind of careful not to say certain things which are provocative. Well, even whether you say that I, I'm uh, brave or not, but I am not an idiot anyhow. Uh, so I'm not going to provoke anyone. And uh, even though I can make some jokes about being in jail, it doesn't mean that I like being in jail. So I'd, I'd rather prefer to be free. So that means that when I talk, I, uh, I avoid certain topics, I avoid certain uh, formulations and so on. Once I was silenced, people started talking about me. And then they didn't uh, choose words. They didn't choose topics. They were much more aggressive. They were much more, much more proactive, so to speak. Because, of course, what can you do about the Internet these days? Uh, internet is everywhere. Okay, uh, Rabkor moved away from Russia. They kind of emigrated. They were younger guys uh, who are often more radical than me. <laughs> Uh, and uh, what did they achieve? Uh, they achieved uh, exactly the opposite to what they wanted, because they've got very much the same topic, the same uh, the same subjects, the same uh, the same messages, but in a much more radical way, and mm. more uh, more voices actually, and the, and a bigger, broader audience. Because Rapcor started growing like crazy once I got arrested. They were. Uh, they were increasing the audience massively. They increased the audience by 20% during my arrest, you see? Brilliant. And they keep growing, they keep growing. And uh, the same thing, uh, my edit, my publisher was, I shouldn't say he was happy about my imprisonment. Uh, no, no, he was not. <laughs> but uh, in business terms, in business terms, he was quite quite successful because uh, they, they sold books like crazy, you know? That's interesting. So how do you read your release? The Were you surprised that the trial was only two days and then all of a sudden you were free? No, I was pretty sure that it was going to be released. I was not that sure when I was uh, sitting in jail, in, jail in, in, in my cell during the second or third month of imprisonment. Uh, but once it was coming closer to the, to the trial, I felt quite confident. Uh, because it was very clear that the other side was uh, actually more worried about me being in jail than yeah. about me uh, saying certain critical things, you know, because they've got more problems with me being in jail than they used to have when I was free. And uh, that's a very clear rational choice that you'd rather get rid of this guy and send him back to Moscow with his cat. Probably he, he, he creates more trouble when he's uh, in sective car, you know. So this goes very much to what you said, you know, upon your release, that you were let out because you were so well known. Absolutely. And as you've just said, this increased your notoriety or your or your fame, let's say, by being in jail and sold more books. So, true, true. yes, that's true. Then letting you out of jail uh, lessens that. But do you think that that holds out hope for those who don't have your, you know, reputation? 
I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. Let's be very uh, clear. Uh, the situation is uh, not improving. Of course, there were a few other cases. There were a few other cases when people were released. There were. Hmm. I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. There were other cases. So I think uh, there is a struggle within uh, the power system. I should say that uh, those ones who represent current Russian political system or current Russian political elite as a kind of monolithic and uh, consolidated, they are completely wrong. Uh, there are debates, there are contradictions, and there are even struggles. And I'm sure there was also a serious struggle about my fate, because there was who wanted me to be jailed, and there were ones who were saying from the very beginning, um, shouldn't do it, you shouldn't do it, and once you did it, you, you better undo it. You better get him back home. Uh, so uh, there was definitely some kind of struggle. And there are struggles around other cases, around, around other issues and around other personalities. Uh, so in that sense, uh, certain uh, layers of Russian bureaucracy are extremely unhappy with what's going on, extremely unhappy. They don't want uh, the kind of neo-archaic state which uh, some of the Russian leaders are trying to build up. They don't want uh, the society to be completely cut from the rest of the world. Uh, they're not very happy with the uh, military operation in Ukraine, uh, mm. at least uh, when it is not producing the expected results. So in that sense, of course, it's true that the uh, Russian army is not losing the war at this stage, but it's not winning either. And so this kind of war can continue endlessly. And there are plenty of people who are unhappy with that. They don't want the war forever. They don't want their children to serve in the army within 10 years from now, uh, fighting the very same Ukrainian guys. By the way, I think the same thing, uh, the same happens in Ukraine as well. I, I have a reason to suspect that Ukrainian society is also tired. Uh, but I should say that there are people who are unhappy. I should tell you one thing that when um, they were collecting uh, money to get me uh, the resources to pay the fine, I know that there were people who collected money for me, for example, uh, among the bureaucrats. Wow. I bought a whole uh, envelope who was uh, the, uh, the guy who presented it, who, he said, uh, well, this is a, a small gift from provincial bureaucrats, from provincial apparatchiki. <laughs> and uh, and also there were guys uh, among the military uh, who uh, participated in collecting the the resources uh, for, for my release from for my fine. Uh, so it tells you much, you see. Uh, and even one of these of these bureaucratic guys, he said, "Well, we have some minor disagreements. Yes, we respect you, but we have some minor disagreements. Well, my minor disagreements." <laughs> what's going on in Ukraine. It's only a minor thing, you know. <laughs> but I think, as you just said, that this can't go on endlessly. And there's so many casualties on both sides, but especially on yes. Russian. And so, you know, and you know, we hear all the time about how certain populations, especially, let's say, in the Komi Republic, but also other parts of, you know, the uh, near abroad, I guess, as they would call it, where those uh, people have much heavier losses in the military operation or the war, as we would call it. So you would expect at least some kind of anti-war movement or sentiment to be expressed, no? There is a lot of anti-war sentiment, but there is not much of an anti-war movement. Let's mm. be clear. In Komi, I failed to see anyone uh, who was uh, supportive of the, the so-called military operation. Just no one. At the same time, I didn't see any strong opposition to it. You see, it was just a kind of negative sentiment. Mm. This is a nasty thing going on. It's better if it didn't happen. It's better if it ends. It's better if we don't uh, take place in it, you know. Why should we shoot at Ukrainians? Is there anything we have to, to fight for? It's absolutely unclear. Why should we fight them? Uh, that was a kind of messages. Uh, at the same time, there was no message about let's protest. No, 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 no. There was almost no protest. 
and more and more, I uh, met uh, quite a few people uh, who were uh, quite ready to join uh, the military as in exchange of being released from jail. You yeah. see that there is a practice in Russia. By the way, it was the same time in England in the 18th and 19th century. It's very much uh, like the old uh, old British army, which was formed of people who who were who had some criminal background and then were recruited into the army. Uh, so uh, so now we have a similar practice in Russia, and people say, well, if I get a sentence more than five years, I'm going to uh, to join the army and uh, get out. And this has happened in a few cases, right? And we certainly it know happens, that's... It a... happens massively. It happens massively. Massively. Okay. But, and this but the, is... Point is, the point is that if you speak with such a guy and uh, you say, uh, do you support the, the, the military operation? He says, no, 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 no. I don't support the military operation. It's, uh, it's not about whether I support it or not. It's about me getting out of jail. Right. Well, we had this during the war in Vietnam, too, but in a different way. Um, I had friends who were about to be drafted, but then this one friend of mine, you know, did some petty theft and he was said, okay, it's either jail for two years or the army for three years. Which one do you take? <laughs> Obviously there's no. Well, um, in Russia, it's the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, but, but I wanted to ask though, because it, we're moving now into the Russian election season. And I wondered if you thought there was anything in your release that is tied to, let's say, the campaign that'll take place uh, for Putin's next term. And I say Putin's next term because there's no real opposition that's allowed to run against him. It's unclear. One thing which I told you before, there is no consolidated political elite around the Kremlin. Or maybe there is something inside the Kremlin, whatever we mean by the Kremlin. Uh, there is probably a more or less consolidated group inside the, the, the Kremlin, but around the Kremlin, no, not anymore. You know, uh, there is a lot of disagreement, a lot of discontent, a lot of even I should say a lot of opposition. My feeling is that there is more opposition in an organized political, articulated political way inside the bureaucracy than outside of the bureaucracy, because people are outside the bureaucracy are usually scared to articulate any political opposition. But once you speak to, to bureaucrats, to I think also um, the military, they don't speak out usually. They're, they're kind of people who, are, who prefer to be silent. But I think the, the, the general feeling is very much the same as within the civil bureaucracy. And the civil bureaucracy, the civil service, this is the real opposition these days in Russia. The, the real ones who, who really are not only unhappy, but who who may at some point really organize as a, as a force against the current policy. I mean, I, I'm very serious. Uh, this is the real force, which is now feeling stronger by the day because the, the top elite can't do anything without them. Uh, somebody has to deal with the mess. The top elite creates the mess. And the civil bureaucracy on the ground has to clean up the mess, you mm. see, economically, socially, and so on and so on. So who is going to suffer? Huh? Who is going to, to clean after after the the, uh, the top uh, the, the top leaders who are totally irresponsible? So well, that, that's what we feel there. So so uh, in that sense. As I said, there is a division and there is a struggle, and uh, my release was part of the struggle, and the, the struggle will continue. Uh, maybe the masses, the, the citizens, the, the, the workers uh, will uh, later join in, but not at this very moment. At this very moment, people are scared and uh, silenced. Mostly. Well, do you think that, you know, you mentioned these divisions and this, as you, and of course, this has always been the case, even, you know, in the uh, monolith that everyone thought the Stalinist and then Brezhnev society was, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of dissension within the party and within the bureaucracy. But I guess the question is, how does it get, how do they make their voices heard in this system? And now we have, the, you know, as I mentioned, the election coming up. And um, you were released, but Navalny was sent off to Harp, which is, you know, uh, an Arctic colony, I guess, in the hopes of silencing him perhaps forever. I don't know. Uh, how how case, do you see all of this? In case of Navalny, it's also much more uh, complicated because he first was brought to Moscow. 
for some reason, nobody understood why. He was kept in Moscow for a while and then sent to the far north. So I think there was a struggle. So one group actually brought him back to Moscow. Then there was a conflict. They they were trying to, uh, maybe they were trying to negotiate with him, by the way. Uh, Maybe they were trying to negotiate something. Uh, They failed. And uh, we don't know what was happening, actually. Uh, there was no news coming out, but we only knew that for some reason he was brought to Moscow, and then after a few weeks he was brought out uh, and taken out uh, to to the far north. So what was happening? We don't know. What I am sure of is that there was some struggle around it. There was uh, maybe not negotiating with Navalny, but maybe negotiating about Navalny mm. within the the system. You know, maybe negotiating with someone in the West as well because there were rumors that they were going to try to exchange him for someone in the West, or maybe exile him, uh, like Solzhenitsyn was exiled, expelled from the Soviet Union. We don't know. We don't know. There are rumors. You know, in a closed society, there are always rumors. There are always rumors, and some of these rumors are true. Some of these rumors are not true, and you never know what's true and what's wrong, Uh, including there were rumors about Putin's health and so on and so on. Uh, there were very serious rumors, and I don't want to comment to make comments on them uh, because uh, I have some ideas of my own, but I will not tell you. <laughs> That's so, fine. That's fine. But this uh, is really interesting, and I know in previous discussions, you know, Boris, maybe last year we talked a lot about the economic situation in Russia and what effect it would have for Russia to become so isolated. And you talked at that point about the adaptations that many factories made once the Western, you know, factories and plants left. And I think everybody's been, or most people have been surprised by how well Russia has kind of adjusted to the sanction regime and and also to increased war production. So the question, I guess, is, what has changed and and is it, you know, can Putin sort of ride on his laurels and say that things are just fine? Well, things are not fine, but uh, if there were some predictions about catastrophe, about things falling apart, this is also not true. So the truth is, as always, somewhere in between. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, when you listen to the government propaganda, everything looks really fine and improving. Uh, When you listen to some emigres uh, who are saying that, well, Russian economy will fall apart tomorrow, it's not going to fall apart tomorrow. Uh, So the truth is uh, somewhere in between. And look, uh, on the one hand, yes, uh, the military production increased, and it seems that it is not only increasing in terms of quantities, but it's also getting better in terms of quality and more adjusted to the actual needs of uh, military operations. Uh, Well, you know, a a friend of mine who has a lot of contacts within the military, he said, uh, unlike the situation which used to be typical for the first month of the conflict, uh, when the, the military were very excited about fighting a real war, but didn't were totally... Uh, incompetent in doing it, in actually fighting it. Uh, And he said, now it's exactly the other way around. Uh, They are uh, quite ready to fight, but not willing to do it. So so the situation changed. And uh, the military production is increasing, but again, it's consuming the resources from the military production. And uh, for example, I failed to leave Siktivkar uh, immediately because uh, there uh, there was no aircraft. Uh, the, the, the company failed to provide an aircraft. Uh, uh, all these people stayed at the airport uh, waiting for, for a plane to arrive. The plane didn't arrive because it, it was broken. I mean, there was no no catastrophe. Just people checked the the machine and said, "Well, it's not good to fly." Period. Uh, this thing is will go will stay ashore, right? Uh, and uh, so on. So there are plenty of minor problems, plenty of minor problems, and the number is increasing, especially in the civilian production, the civilian economy. At the same time, these things are not as bad as to completely destroy the society or the economy. It's just just 
well, uh, bad things happen, you know. And uh, also, it's very important to know that uh, Russian economy used to be very inefficient and still very inefficient. But ironically, it's it's uh, exactly it's a resource for adaptation. For example, when your economy wastes, say, twenty uh, percent of resources. And then you just start uh, wasting not 20% of your resources, but only 18% of your resources. It means you have 2% increase in, in, in the quality, quality of, 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 the, of the usage of resources, you see. So in that sense, this enormous inefficiency became a resource. You can improve things mildly, and then already have a, a real change for better. But there are limits, of course, to this. Well, this is really interesting. So just, I guess, um, I, I I really want to hear your thoughts about Putin's move. Let's say, was it brazen of him, you know, in regard to what happened to Prigozhin uh, here in the in the news here? It said that this is clear that this was an assassination. Um, the question really is, do you think Putin feels secure now? Because the war is not going so badly, the economy is not going so badly, and he's been able so far to silence his most important critics? Well, first of all, we don't know much about Putin. We don't know much about his health. We don't know much about his existence. And there are all sorts of uh, fantastic rumors going around, and I just don't want to comment. But anyhow, Putin's personality is not that important anymore. One thing which is 100% clear, that he's not running the show anymore. He's not the person who makes decisions. He's not anymore. He used to be. But at this point, whether he's alive or dead, or whether he's healthy or, or, or sick, we don't know. But what we know is that he's not the guy who runs the show anymore. Uh, it seems that there is some kind of oligarchy, collective, uh, collective politburo, whatever they call it, uh, or, although it's not like Soviet Politburo, it's a very different structure. It's just a, a clique, a, a gang of, of influential people within oligarchy and bureaucracy. But anyhow, there is a, some kind of collective leadership which runs the country at this point. Whether they will stay united, it's a big question. I don't think they're going to stay united for too long. This is one thing. And the other thing is that... Um, uh, what happened to Prigozhin? Again, we don't know. We don't know. First of all, I was in jail when it happened. Right. Second, uh, well, I think it was an assassination, I think. But who was behind it? It's a big question. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure it was Putin himself who was behind the, that explosion, which supposedly killed uh, Prigozhin. We even have rumors that Prigozhin was not killed. You know, of course, <laughs> even uh, here too. Yeah. Uh, well, it's like in the Middle Ages, you know, like uh, in medieval society, we didn't have modern communication media and uh, all, uh, the media was so unreliable in our case that you can have all sorts of rumors. And some of, sometimes they, they become true and some, they happen to be true. Uh, but we don't know, and uh, I'd rather prefer to make no judgments, no no, no statements, because uh, you can easily get wrong, you know. But I think the most important thing that you're saying, Boris, is that, you know, there is this very strong group, let's say, within the top that is running the show and making the decisions. And, and so that makes it, unless they're, unless this is known, it makes it harder in some ways to organize against it. But I wondered first on that, and then I guess finally uh, to ask you what your plans are now that you're free. Well, the same as uh, it was when I was free before the jail, and now I'm free again after the jail, so it doesn't make any difference. I will keep writing, I will keep working, I will keep uh, editing books for Direct Media uh, Publishing House, this uh, series of uh, socialist thought uh, throughout the 20th, 20th and 21st century. Uh, well, I, I'm not running RAPCOR anymore because there are younger guys who are running it. Uh, I cannot run my own Telegram channel uh, uh, as well uh, because, again, I'm banned. I, I'm going to absolutely fulfill all the, uh, the demands of the court because uh, 
Among other things, I think it was a very good decision, the best one we could get given the circumstances. So in that sense, I think that the, uh, the court itself uh, proved to be uh, uh, the best option possible in the current situation. Uh, so the, the way they behaved, the way they dealt with the, with the case, I think it was uh, pretty good. Uh, again, compared to what could happen, compared to what could be the alternatives. Uh, so, um, well, I'm going to stay in Russia, of course. If you're asking about that, I'm not going to leave. If you're, going, <laughs> you're asking about my, my perspectives, my plans, my plan is to stay over and to work with my friends. And even uh, some people are now returning to Russia. I know that some of political immigrants are now returning. Uh, so, uh, well, we have to wait uh, for, for the better times. And I think... It, uh, the, the the changes are going to happen quite soon. Well, this is really good news, uh, Boris, and I want to thank you so much for doing this. I expect, of course, that this sort of enforced period where you're not uh, given access to, you know, Rob Core and to your TV channel, will you will use to probably just produce even more books that we're going to look forward to to reading. I wanted to let the listeners know your latest book. It's about the left, but it's is it translated? Or is, are there plans? It's in process of being translated. It's already translated. It's in the process of being edited for Pluto Press. Uh, and it's called The Long Retreat. The long uh, it's retreat. about the current situation of the left. <laughs> and, uh, uh, well, I ended with a call for for stopping the retreat and probably going forward. Uh, well, uh, hopefully it will be out, uh, published in London within a few months from now. We'll look forward to reading it. And finally, do you have any message to, you know, the listeners? Well, stay <laughs> firm. Stay firm. Happy New Year, Boris Kagerlitsky. We're Year. thrilled that you're released. And thanks for talking to us today on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. 